Hi, this is Carol Sanford. I am the host for The Responsible Capitalist. I'm also the host for The Responsible Entrepreneur, and you're gonna hear a bit in our interview today of a crossover between those two categories. Today, though, I'd like to mention to you more about how do you partner when you're creating a community of investors and entrepreneurs coming together, and even if you're a middle kind of link where you're trying to help advance those entrepreneurs and you have to raise funds, all of that has a mix that could become deadly if you're not asking the questions about what responsible partnering looks like. I do this same work when I'm working with large corporations around how they do mergers and acquisitions, even divestitures, how it is we really think about what partnering looks like. And by the way, you may find this works in your relationship as well. So let me give you four of the basic characteristics. And over time, we'll pick up a few more of these. But the first is that you will be, by definition, coming into relationship, coming into community if it's big enough. And the conversation that needs to be had at the very beginning is, what do each of us want the characteristics of that to look like? How do I know when I'm in community? How do I know when I'm feeling in reciprocity with others? And what is it that that plays out? And how do each of us look at it differently? Then you can have a conversation and define which things are most critical for each side of the, the relationship and maybe build those into principles. Now, that may sound strange when you're thinking about some fund, someone funding you as an impact investor, but I assure you, it's one of the places I have seen funded entrepreneurs get in trouble and even investors get in trouble when they thought they had alignment. The second area is highly related to it, but it goes back to something you might call the motives for being in this. So we have the community and what we want it to look like, but the, the players, the different players, at least two sets of players, may have very disparate motives. That doesn't mean they're conflicting, but they come and are sourced from different places. So it's important to slow down and ask, what are my motives for being in this? What are your motives for being in it? And as much as possible to be really open and explicit because the more you hide things at this stage, the more they'll come back to bite you later. So now we've got this combination of a community characteristics we want and clarity about the motives, all of which are above board and all can be agreed to, or you may find out at that point, it's not a good match. There are two other arenas, though, that you need to have this conversation about. And by the way, this is really important when you're hiring people as well. Are they going to be in the territory of the shared community characteristic and disparate motives? And third, global imperatives are shared. Now, what in the world does that mean? Well, imperatives to me means non-negotiable. I mean, it's like it's gotta happen. That's how things work. So for example, one of my global imperatives is I wanna use earth resources only at a rate that she can renew them. And as far as I know, if I continue to empty water tables, rarely can Mother Earth get that one refilled. Uh, social systems, one of my imperatives, that's a social imperative, is that people cannot behave in a democracy in an educated and meaningful way unless they have been developed, unless we are getting them involved deeply in education, but also personal reflection. Because so much of the decision-making we make in democracy has to do with what's going on inside 
inside of our head, our own uh, drivers, all of the things that make us be selfish versus, or not versus, but in addition to caring about the whole, how is it that we can articulate what we think those imperatives are? Now, that sounds like questions. Why would you need that about business? But if you're talking about a responsible business, you need to have shared alignment on what you're gonna reconcile to if you have to make decisions. Global imperatives are a very good place to do that. The fourth and final area I want you to look at is, do you have shared bodies of thought? <laughs> I don't mean do you think the same. I mean, do you source your thinking from the same place? Do you have the same philosophy about life? Um, do you really bring, I mean, you could even use the word cosmology here, like how things work. Do we have agreement and alignment and we're sourced from the same place? It's one of the challenges of, that people have of bringing religions together because they may be uh, coming from very different bodies of thought but it can be different parts of the country. It can be men and women. It can be uh, philosophies about who's included and who's not. This conversation makes it possible to build a strong partnership. So before you accept money or give money or hire someone or decide that you're going to buy a company, ask, do we have shared community characteristics that we're aligned to? Do we understand one another's motives, even if they're different? Do we agree on the global imperatives? And by the way, this is a good place to help those become alive in your company. And do we uh, have a shared body of thought, or at least ones that we can find that we can work in community on? Today, we're going to have a bit of a conversation with, as I said, a capitalist named Ross Baird, who has been working with, a, he built a group called Village Capital, and it's about building collaborative community entrepreneurship. But it's a platform also for making sure funding happens. That's why it's a little of a crossover. And I think you'll see these questions, you'll see the questions I'm asking him coming out of these four arenas. Welcome, Ross Baird. I'm so glad to have you with me today. Could you give people just a little bit of background about you and even more so a little bit about Village Capital, you know, what the work is you do and why, just to get us started? Yeah, Carol, thank you so much for, for having me on here. It's really excited to be talking with you. Um, my name is Ross Baird. I run a group called Village Capital, and our vision for the world is, is two things. Number one, we want entrepreneurship to be the tool that people embrace to solve major, major challenges across the globe. Um, entrepreneurship is more than just a few people making a lot of money off of a, a, a few companies that have really taken off. Entrepreneurship is about taking challenges that no one thinks is possible to solve and, and actually solving them and making meaningful progress. Uh, the other thing we want to do is we want to democratize entrepreneurship. We want people everywhere who've got an idea to be able to have a pathway to taking their idea to solve a problem. We want people to be able to join startup companies. We want people to find companies to invest in that resonate with problems they want to solve. And we, we, we want to make this accessible to everyone. Who does tend to be either the people who are attracted to you or the ones you go after? Sort of how you describe the audience that you're most suited to having Village Capital work with. Yeah, so we really focus on two major challenges that I think as a society we've got, we've got to solve, we've got to address. Number one is access to opportunity for the poor. Our society has never been more prosperous. It's also, um, there are major, major inequalities that are part of, part of economic growth. But if people who are on the wrong side of inequality now don't have access to opportunity, society's uh, going to collapse. And so 
We think that entrepreneurship provides tremendous access to opportunity for the poor, whether it be better health outcomes, um, better educational outcomes for kids who are aspiring to, to make a better lives for themselves and future generations, uh, access to fair financial services that enable people's day-to-day budgets uh, go further with, with limited resources. Uh, and and we, we think entrepreneurs can address that and, and, and make, make a better planet. Um, the other major challenge that we focus on is resource sustainability of the planet. So the way that we produce and use energy, the way that we produce, distribute, and consume our food, the way that we use water, which in some parts of the world is more expensive than oil, uh, to, as part of the way that we live, the way that we work, the way that we, we get around. And so um, those are two big global global themes that we work within. And, and people who are attracted to solving those problems are, are people who work with all across the spectrum. Why don't you give us some examples? Uh, I mean, those are all massive challenges you're talking about. And you're one fund with, you know, a limited set of resources with a very huge mission. Give us some examples of how that plays out and, you know, how you can kind of, I don't know that you can predict success, but you get some ideas in your head about whether something's going to work. So tell us about some of those examples and how they played out. Yeah, well, in, in entrepreneurship, there's, there's a saying that we really believe it's better to be specific and wrong than vague and right. And so um, I'm just giving you some vague challenges that are not uh, controversial. I think most people on the planet would agree that we, these need to be solved. And we don't think any venture out there can solve these problems. We do think ventures can solve really, really specific small parts of this problem. So, for example, we've got a company called Simpa Networks in India that uh, addresses the problem of over a billion people in the world living off the powered electric grid. Uh, people can't afford home energy systems, and what they can't afford, kerosene or diesel, is, is really, really destructive to the planet. Simpa makes home solar-powered energy systems that, even if you can't afford them out of pocket, if you're living on a dollar or two a day, what you can do is take your mobile phone and pay pennies a day to be able to rent this system over a year, year and a half period of time until you own it, until you've paid off the, the cost of the system. So Sim- Simpa lets you pay as you go uh, for energy use until you own a system that transforms the way you live. Uh, that, that's one. Another one is a company called Kickboard in the U.S., uh, which we have so much information about how uh, – how we live our daily life. Like when you drive around using Google Maps, you have so much information about where this road is, what traffic is like, et cetera. And you use, you use this to, to get where you want to go faster. Teachers in the U.S., particularly in overcrowded classrooms that don't have great performance, have the same opportunity to use information to be better teachers. But instead of driving around using Google Maps, they're like driving around using an 18th century map and a compass. And they can't really make sense of whether this kid who has a bad score in math just doesn't understand fractions or doesn't understand math. And so... Kickboard helps teachers manage uh, manage data to make better decisions every day when they teach, yielding really uh, really strong educational outcomes in, in schools that don't have a ton of resources. Um, so I'm going to go over to the other end. By the way, I'm not really a journalist, I, which is weird. I'm curious. 
really curious and uh, listening to you is uh, very educational to me. Um, If you run over to the other end of the connection of finance where it runs up against the Securities and Exchange Commission, Mm -hmm. right now this field is kind of amorphous, still being defined. You know, what does it mean to be a responsible, conscious, impact, you know, pick a word, investor? What does it mean to be an accredited investor and can you play in those fields and non-accredited? Uh, and, you know, there's a lot of stuff in motion right now around that subject. How do you think about it and how do you see it affecting what you're trying to do? Yeah, great question. So, uh, again, our, our, our mission is to democratize entrepreneurship. I think one of, the biggest, uh, one of the biggest challenges is that while our process for building entrepreneurs is democratic, um, nobody's source of capital in the entrepreneurial world is democratic. The majority of capital for early stage companies comes from people, organizations, foundations with a lot of resources. And uh, because a lot of times solutions follow the money, uh, well-resourced people rather than your average person on the street are dictating the agenda of what entrepreneurs are working on and how, how they solve problems. And so there have been, for example, uh, the Jobs Act passed last year opens up the door to crowdfunding where, you know, me and you and, and my mom and, and everybody every day could invest in a startup. And I think that is, um, there are all, I think there are all kinds of things you need to do to make sure that people don't get taken advantage of and, and people invest their money with full information and, and all of that. But I think the general principle of anybody being able to participate in a startup any way they want, including and especially with their money, is is a transition I'd love to see. And I'm really eager to see. We haven't gotten clarity from the SEC around what the Jobs Act and what crowdfunding means. And the bill was passed, uh, you know, months ago. And so that's that's some clarity I'd like to see. I'm sure that the SEC is trying to figure out how to make crowdfunding happen in a way that protects investors, which they should, and it's their job. And I'm eager to see what they come up with, because I think that making entrepreneurs accessible to everyone's, uh, everyone who wants to help in any way, including investment, is absolutely critical to making sure entrepreneurs are working on the actual real problems that real people experience. I mean, I spend a lot of time talking with impact investors about a couple of questions that I'd, I would really love your reflections on. Um, when I watch people, good-hearted people, great-intentioned people who decide they want to move into the world of supporting things that would do better for the world, all the kind of things you talked about at the very beginning here, creating you know, water, uh, environmental kinds of things, I find that most investors are not very good at assessing what I would call the return on the social side. Mm-hmm. Now, what I mean by that is they can see that it's not as bad as what's currently going on. So therefore, a uh, you know, there are a lot of people who are building alternative methods to cook that don't use trees and change how you use energy. The question for me always is how do you really assess whether the one you're looking at is not, it goes beyond being good people goes beyond good intention to it's actually likely to be a system shift. Can you do that kind of assessment about whether it's going to move an industry, you know, whether it's going to move something bigger? And I find that most uh, people who are used to investing money, you know, the ones who have money and want to make a difference, 
are funding things loosely, which maybe don't actually have the kind of social return. How do you go about helping and, you know, your, those investors who, who are making those decisions, how can they tell what the social return is going to be? They know how to do the financial return. Mm-hmm. How about the social? How do you, how do you do that? Do you see what I see? Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I mean, entrepreneurship happens in systems. And I think that um, one of the probably, I mean, probably the most important thing in what we do is diagnosing the actual problem that is preventing the change we want to see in the world from happening. So there's a, there's a line loosely attributed to Albert Einstein saying, if I had an hour to solve a problem, I'd spend 55 minutes thinking about what the actual problem is, and then five minutes on the solution. And when we organize our programs for entrepreneurs, uh, we don't organize them around geographies, like every social entrepreneur in India. Uh, we don't organize them around industries. Every social entrepreneur in education, we do organize them around specific problems. And a lot of the work that we do in building the systems is, is diagnosing what the problems are. So let me give you an example. We're doing a program around education in the U.S., uh, the first half of next year. And it is around what, uh, let me, let me ask you a question, Carol. Have you ever played risk the game? Yes. Where do you start? If you get to place the first, yeah. <laughs> that's a fabulous question. I don't even remember. I do remember playing, but I love that question. How, where do, how do you decide? Okay. So there's a strategy where you, uh, if you own a continent, you, uh, you get more, army people every turn. And there's a strategy where Australia is the smallest continent, but it's the easiest one to own. And people will load up on Australia and (laughs) just own Australia because it's kind of far away from everybody else and build up strength and then go, go take over the rest of the world from there. And um, there's an issue in education in the U S that one, one guy called the Australia strategy, where if you're an education startup that wants to improve outcomes for low income, you can do really well very early on in charter schools uh, and teach for America and reform oriented books, but it's, it's very, very difficult in a great school district. And so there is a uh, consistent path to success of getting initial validation in charters and then scaling to public school districts where 90% of low income kids in the U.S. are educated. And so um, there are two issues coming from this. One is if you're an entrepreneur, this is a path to success that other entrepreneurs like you have navigated before. So instead of figuring out how to do this by yourself, figuring out how to navigate this strategy among other entrepreneurs who have done it, other investors who invest in companies that have done it, um, other, other board members who've sat on the boards of other companies have done it gets you where you want to go faster. So that's one thing. There is a broader, uh, more complicated, but more interesting outcome of that, which is the thing holding back great new technologies from reaching every low income kid in the US is maybe not lack of available innovation, maybe not uh, you know lack of will, but specific issues in technology purchasing budgets for public schools or rules in the way that you can bring on a new technology. So if we have this group of entrepreneurs in one place working together and we have people from school districts, we have policymakers, we have policy thought leaders there, they'll see what these entrepreneurs are trying to do. And their response may not be, oh, I want to fund that company. It may be, I want to go back to Jacksonville or Chicago and change the way that we we think about innovation or interfacing with entrepreneurs. So um, 
focusing a group of entrepreneurs around a system level problem and inviting, you know, really being a big tent, inviting anyone that has interse any intersection with that problem, we think helps us make progress on solving the actual problem a lot more quickly. Wow, that's fabulous. Village Capital came into existence in the middle of a bunch of folks, I mean, kind of an exploding fields of called impact investing. Mm -hmm. um, and it, I, I mean, when I, I've listened to you speak before, I get hints about why I think it came into existence and what unique sort of gap, void, I don't know what you'd call it, challenge it's seeking to take on. And you structured it in a particular way. Can you talk a little bit about why Village Capital and how it differentiates and what you're trying to do with the, the approach you've taken? Yeah, so great question, Carol. Globally, we're seeing a massive, massive, massive paradigm shift in the economy of people wanting to invest their money alongside their values. And we've always had this idea of business exists to maximize your wealth, my wealth, wealth for company shareholders. And with whatever money you have left over, you give it away to a cause that you believe in. And I think that people around the world are saying, that's not good enough. We have really high standards for where we work and what we do with our lives and where our money goes. And it's not just this end of the year tax deduction philanthropic throwaway or this thing that the government does. It's something that we want to be doing all the time with our job or with all of our resources. And that is that is happening to the tune of trillions of dollars globally. Um, however, I think that most, you know, most companies today do not have the kind of systematic impact DNA that these people who want to, you know, myself included, you included, want to work at, work with, invest in. And so um, most of the shift in companies that integrate impact with successful business models is happening at the startup stage. And people with resources uh, don't typically like to take risk. And so they will, they have this theory of integrated companies, uh, values and business models. They look at all the companies they see on a day-to-day -day basis and they say, Oh, these are, these are too early stage or, Oh, these companies are never going to make it. Like why, why can't a company come along and fit this vision that I have of a company that I can believe in and, you know, will be a good use of my resources, um, and also make the impact I want to see. And I think that that is a, value capture approach to integrating impact in business. I'm going to wait until the value is created. I'm going to jump in and be a part of it. And I think that where we are approaching this problem is value creation. I don't think that anybody can predict what the great uh, impact enterprise looks like. And I think that there are a bunch of companies that um, have amazing potential and need lots and lots of resources, funding, employees, advisors, board members, uh, and all of these things need to come together for that potential to be unlocked. And I think getting involved with companies that are not quite there yet and working to build a system that gets companies to where the people that we're talking about want faster is really important. And I think when uh, we have an amazing group of, of program funders and investors that want to be a part of that value creation, most, we have two structures. We have a nonprofit that funds training companies for programs and the people who um, support this are people who really believe in entrepreneurship to solve the problems that the programs are framed around. And then we've got an investment fund that invests in companies uh, that graduate from these programs. And 
The thing that we do that is different is the investment capital is decided who gets the money. The end of our, our training programs, two companies will get 50,000 each and the investment is decided by the entrepreneurs themselves. So two companies will get 50 to a hundred thousand each. And the reason why we have peer selection of resources is we don't want to set up our programs as value capture. Like all of you come together and a couple of wealthy people will decide who gets funded. We want to say all of you are part of building a system. All of you are worthy of investment. A couple of you are ready to receive investment today. And to prove that we believe that all of you are worthy, you are actually the ones who are going to pick who gets the resources today at the end of, at the end of our program. I was in New York um, last week, weekend before last and this last weekend at the end of the week, having conversations with a university called Glasgow Caldanian, Caldonian, I guess it is, University, Scottish University. Uh, and they have a partner, Mohammed Yunus, in the launching of a new set of master's programs and certificates around fashion and food in a way that can be built out of entrepreneurship. Now, one of the questions people were asking me, and in fact, I got a call even this morning from the University of Washington, who are all trying to figure out where Mohammed Yunus fits relative to the kind of social entrepreneurs who go just into India and find one piece. And then I think like, and you, you know, wh where do you think is the role for microfinance and the evolution of that? And of course, that's changed a lot compared mm -hmm. to the way you're working. Is there a role for both or, you know, how do they work and how do you see them fitting together or conflicting? Oh, absolutely. Well, so so we um, I mean, everybody stands on the shoulders of giants and it, it's very unlikely that we would be talking today if. if it weren't for the work that Dr. Eunice had done. I mean, Dr. Eunice um, really, really uh, helped pioneer the idea that um, you could merge business with traditional social development, uh, social problem solving in, in, in a way that made, uh, made it much easier for me to explain to people what I do for a living. I'm still not quite sure if my, my parents understand what I do for a living. Um, but, um, I, I, so microfinance, uh, small loans to entrepreneurs all around the world is absolutely, uh, absolutely critical DNA wise aligned with what we do. This idea of um, the village capital, one of the inspirations for the name village capital came from the village banking methodology that, uh, that was uh, really popularized by the Grameen Bank, where groups of primarily women would uh, support one another in the development of micro enterprises and also decide who was ready for a loan from, from the Grameen Bank. And so uh, this, Dr. Eunice's work really inspired the idea and scaling that idea of uh, communities of entrepreneurs supporting, building, investing in each other up to a larger scale is, is really important. I think um, microfinance itself is a small subset of a much bigger theme of financial inclusion, access to financial services for underserved people that we are very active in. Um, I think that what, you know, I, I think that what we need is lots and lots of things like microfinance. Now, if you go, I mean, if you explain, if you say the word microfinance, billions of people around the world know what you're talking about and get how it works and get why it's important and get, get, get what progress is made. I would love for 
access to energy that have the same visibility and credibility that microfinance does or, or, you know, alternatives for water use or, you know, even, you know, other financial services beyond lending for unbanked and underbanked people like that is that is um, I would love to see uh, I would love to see millions of Dr. Eunice's around the world. And I hope a lot of them are alumni of Village Capital Programs. <laughs> wow, that was a fabulous answer. Totally inspiring answer. Thank you. So we know your email. How about if people want to check out a website or follow you on something else, Twitter, Facebook? So www.vilcapvilcap.com is our website. Um, Twitter, we are at Village Capital. I am at Ross Baird. Um, and that is, that is the best way to know what's coming up. All right. Wow, this has been a phenomenal conversation. I thank you so much for taking the time. Um, and um, I'll, I'll be following you, find out what's going on. Thanks. Thanks a ton. I really uh, appreciate your time, Carol, and it's, uh, it's great talking with you. Thank you, Ross. I mean, I think you all can see why I said that talking with Ross is a way of really understanding very complex systems. I commented on that during our conversation, and as I come to the end, I'm very impressed again with how well Ross holds all of that together. And we will put on the website a way to reach out to Ross and to Village Capital if you want to know more. You also will find there how to reach out to us and find more about the Responsible Capitalist podcast, the Responsible Entrepreneur podcast, and my two most recent books, both of which have won many awards because of the stories that they're filled with with people like this, as well as being so easy to read. So check out the Responsible Business and the Responsible Entrepreneur, both at carolsanford.com. Sign up for our podcast if you want on iTunes to be notified every time we publish a new one, and we'll look forward to seeing you next time. Thanks. Mm -hmm.